Let's pray together. Loving Lord God, we thank you for your word to us. Come now and speak into our hearts and minds. May the words that I speak be your words and the voice that we hear your voice. Move us from words into action, we pray. Amen. I wonder if you remember those bracelets that used to have acrostic mnemonics on them. Do you know what I mean? There was ones that used to say WWJD. They were popular when I was a teenager, so, you know, just a couple of years ago. Um, you used to have those. The WWJD, what would Jesus do? That was one of them. I don't know if you remember any of the others. There was one that said frog on it, which I always used to find quite amusing, but apparently that stood for faithfully rely on God. That was one of them. You perhaps had a collection. I had a little collection. Our youth group used to wear them. It was sort of a competition about who was holiest, you know, who had the most bracelets. Uh, But the one that I liked the least was the one that said push on it, P-U-S-H. Pray until something happens. I really didn't like that as a teenager. It seemed to me like we were saying that God would only answer our prayers if we were annoying enough. You know, if we just kept bothering and going back again and again and again, and that if people didn't return to God with their prayers over and again, well, then God would probably think they didn't really want it. They didn't want it that badly, and so he wouldn't answer those prayers. And that was an idea of God that I just couldn't get my head around. Even as a teenager, it didn't make sense to me that God was like that. If God was all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful then surely God didn't need us to come again and again and ask for the things that we need. I thought that we didn't need to be like the widow in that gospel reading that we heard, uh, who went to that judge uh, to get justice for something that was wrong in her life. But the judge just couldn't be bothered. So she returns again and again until the judge is so annoyed by her and a bit worried that she's going to do some harm against him that then at that point he decides that he'll give her justice. Not because it's the right thing to do, not because he's full of compassion, but just to get rid of her nagging him. Surely, I thought to myself, God isn't like that. And of course, God isn't like that. What I wasn't understanding, though, as a teenager, was that the constant returning to God in prayer isn't for God's sake. It isn't to plea our case better. It isn't to provide more evidence for why we should get what we want. It isn't to wear down God's will. God hears our prayers, and God has compassion on us. Sometimes we don't get the answer that we want, Sometimes we don't understand the answer that we're given. Sometimes the answer doesn't come when we want. But God is with us, and God always hears our prayers. We are told uh, at the beginning of this little parable why Jesus is telling it, why he's telling this story about a woman nagging a judge for justice. He says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Just before this section that we heard, Jesus has been teaching about what's to come and about the coming of the Son of Man, and Jesus predicts his own death. He tells them whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, 
and whoever loses their life will preserve it. They're not easy words for the disciples to hear. It's a hard teaching that Jesus has just given to them. And so, after all of that difficult teaching, Jesus tells them this parable to remind the disciples that, yes, there's going to be hard times, but they are not to lose heart and to have persistence in prayer. A question that's being asked of us, I think, is, do we have faith so that when the Son of Man comes, he will find us ready, as we read in that Gospel reading? Are we constantly living our lives from a posture of prayer? When we're asking God over and over again for the same things in prayer, we're not doing it to nag God to get what we want or to change God's mind. We're doing what we've been told to do. We know that God is able and we're bringing ourselves before him. Prayer is a lifestyle, I think. It's a way of being. In the Thessalonians reading, there was that same instruction from Paul to the early church community. Pray continually. Recently, my spiritual director reminded me that the whole of our lives should be lived from and in a place of prayer. That all that we do can be a form of prayer. That's not to say, of course, that we don't need particular times to sit down and to pray. And as a deacon, I'm a member of a religious order And I have committed to living a life of prayer. And I do set aside time each day to pray. But it's more than that. It's more than just praying at certain times. It's how I live each moment of the day. Now, of course, I don't always get this right. In fact, I get it wrong far more often than I should. I get tired and grumpy. I lose my patience and I snap. Perhaps I should go back to wearing one of those what would Jesus do bracelets. And I suppose that's part of the reason why I wear my diaconal cross. Yes, it's an outward symbol of my membership of the order. It tells other people part of who I am. But it's also a reminder to myself of the commitment that I've made about how I'm to live my life. But of course, it's not only deacons that are called to live our lives a certain way because of our commitment to Christ. That is a calling on all Christians. Being a follower of Jesus should change how we live every aspect of our lives. Uh, And we, of course, as a church, little plug here, have a resource to help with that. We have a Methodist way of life. Uh, We did a little study on that earlier. If you want more information, come and see me. We have lots of ways that we try and do this, don't we? We should live our whole lives in and from a posture of prayer. In our reading from the first book of Thessalonians, Paul is encouraging that very early Christian community on how to live. He says, encourage one another, build each other up, live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other, and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That is how we are called to live with each other. When you hear that list of how we should be in community, I wonder how it makes you feel. 
Is it daunting? Is it overwhelming? Do you think, yes, yes, we're doing really well. How well do we do on the checklist of Christian community living? One of the ways that we do that, of course, is how we have our pastoral leaders. It was so good this morning to be able to dedicate them in their work, to pray for them and to hear them recommit themselves to this important work of caring for our members. We're blessed to have 39 pastoral leaders in this church who all use their gifts to offer care and support. If you're a church member, I wonder if you know who your pastoral leader is. When you aren't well or you're struggling, do you reach out to that person? One of the challenges that they have as our pastoral leaders is that they're not mind readers. Now, I know that's a bit disappointing. We'd like them just to know everything about us immediately, but they don't. And actually, pastoral care and looking after one another is a two-way street. We need to communicate with one another. Your pastoral leader will do their best to look out for you. They'll be in touch with you. They will pray for you. But it's important for you to let them know if you're not doing so well, so that they can come alongside you in those times. I thank God for the many ways that we care for one another here at Methodist Central Hall Westminster. We have our wonderful pastoral leaders, but they're not the only people that do this, of course. We have our cultural fellowship groups, JC Live and YPF, our children's and young people's group, Wednesday at Westminster, Disciple Bible Study. All of these and so many more are caring places where we look after one another. And I especially am thankful for the ministry of our pastoral leaders as we think of them today who help us to fulfill those instructions from Paul. But there's a lot, isn't there? It's not just about pastoral care that Paul's asking of us as Christian communities. Are we encouraging one another? Are we being patient? Are we living in peace? Are we always striving for what is good for each other and for everyone else? And I think this leads us into another aspect of that reading from Luke. Comes through a lot of what we've been thinking about. Jesus links prayer and justice. It's quite astonishing, as Lansford said earlier, about this widow, about who she was and how she behaved. She would have been on the margins of society, with no status or power or wealth of her own. The fact that she would dare to approach a judge, that she would try to advocate for herself in order to get justice. She is a model, I think, of human striving and tenacity in the face of this arbitrary power. And we don't need to look too far at the world around us to find people striving against authorities and systems where their voice seems to count for nothing, where they don't have power or influence. Despite her place in society, this widow is relentless in her pursuit of justice. Jesus, in telling this parable, challenges the assumption of a helpless widow. He gives her agency and authority to challenge a corrupt power. In the telling of this story, Jesus was calling out the injustice of the systems in which he lived. I wonder what stories we tell. Do we use our voices to advocate for those whose own voices are drowned out in the noise of this world? Better yet, do we make space to hear the voices of those who are actually marginalised and silenced in society? 
Just this week, I was in Bristol at the Methodist City Centre Network gathering for two days. It's a time when people lay and ordained who were involved in ministry in our cities in this country gather together to share with one another. And one of the speakers that we heard from was the Reverend Indigit Bogle. He's a former president of conference and has spent his whole ministry challenging injustice. And Indigit is the founder of the City of Sanctuary Movement and the Church of Sanctuary Movement that grew from it. And I was really challenged as I listened to Indigit speak to ask myself the question, how am I challenging injustice? How are we, as a church, challenging injustice? It was great to hear that testimony from Dee earlier in the work that Sanctuary are doing. And I'm not saying we're not challenging injustice, we are in many ways, but there is always more that we can do. We can always strive to be better disciples. Are we praying with our eyes open to the injustice around us? One of the commentaries that I read whilst I was preparing for today said, prayer itself can embody action. Prayer itself can embody action. So perhaps I should revisit my dislike of pray until something happens. Perhaps that is just what God is calling us to do, to keep praying. Maybe, just maybe, we are being called to be the something that happens. And so let's recommit ourselves today to pray always and not to lose heart. Not because we need to badger into doing what we want, but as an expression of our faith in our justice-loving God. Amen.